Paul would be logical and argumentative because that's what the culture he was in, um, that's how they, they acted. They valued rhetoric and eloquence. But when debating failed him, it was reinforced in him that nothing he could do would save anyone. It had to be Christ. So he abandoned what he had been doing, and he began to only preach Christ crucified. And he never left the city defeated again, as he had in Athens. So that's what the message is titled this morning, is Christ crucified. Because that's what is the most important thing we can remember. So in verses 22 and 23 that we just read, we saw that the cross, that the cross is a stumbling block and foolishness to, those, to, to Jews and Greeks. And knowing something is a stumbling block to people um, without Christ, conventional wisdom would tell us to avoid that like the plague. If someone's going to stumble over it, it's something we shouldn't do. But that's not, that's not what Paul says. So as we're getting started, let's define some terms. First off, let's start with human wisdom. For our purposes today, human wisdom or wisdom of man um, is, utter, is defined as utterly foolish. And second, we need to define the foolishness of God. I bet if you were asking I bet you are asking, if God is really holy and sovereign and just, how could anything from him be foolish? And I would answer, exactly. For it is, I was incredibly confused about this whole terminology for about two weeks as I was beginning to study this. But as I studied, it became clearer and clearer that Paul wasn't saying God is foolish or was foolish. He's saying that if anything from God was even slightly foolish, it would be infinitely more wise than even the wisest of human wisdom. So Paul is being quite sarcastic here, but it is being done to make this point. Don't try to outsmart God. So as we get into this, let's talk about the wisdom of man. To illustrate the idea here of wisdom of man, I have a couple biblical examples. The first one is the fall. Genesis, 1, or Genesis 3, 1 through 7 says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So Adam and Eve, even though they were sinless, they attempted to become wise, and in that, they ate the forbidden fruit, and they became fools. And the second biblical example I have is Romans 1, 18 through 25, it says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress truth, since that what we can know about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his, 
his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood that through, through what he has made, as a result, people are without excuse. For they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who was praised forever. Amen. And here, again, we see that man's wisdom just leads to destruction. Man is proud and arrogant, and we don't like listening to instructions. And it's not hard to look around and see this type of thinking is still invasive in churches today. Francis Schaeffer said, we must ask where we as evangelicals have been in the battle for truth and morality in our culture. Have we as evangelicals been on the front lines contending for the faith and confronting the moral breakdowns over the last 40 to 60 years? Most of the evangelical world has not been active in the battle or even been able to see that we are in a battle. The last 60 years have given birth to a moral disaster, and what have we done? Sadly, we must say that the evangelical world has been a part of the disaster. More than this, the evangelical response itself has been a disaster. Where is the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctively biblical Christian answers? With tears, we must say, it's not there and that there is a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the world spirit of this present age. And more than this, we can expect the future to be a further disaster if the evangelical world does not take a stand for biblical truth and morality in the full spectrum of life. In today's era of self-love, if self-love you are seen as bigoted and hateful by the culture if you offer correction or you disagree with how people live their lives. Now, before we go any further, this needs to be said. Christians have no right to tell non-Christians how to live their lives as long as they aren't hurting anybody or anything. But we do have the obligation to uphold God's standard to anyone who claims to be under God's authority, a.k.a. Christians. I say this because it would be easy to try and widen the Christian gates without altering the core, core of Christianity to let more people in, but this simply isn't possible. A.W. Tozer said, All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences are fundamental. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same, and its emphasis is not as before. The cross in this new evangelism does not slay the sinner, it redirects him. It gears him into a clear, cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and and enjoy the thrill of the abundant Christian life. The idea behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. 
is complete, it completely misses the meaning of the cross. And here are three prominent examples of people trying to widen the gate. The first comes from Gary David Comstock, a Protestant chaplain at Wesleyan University. He said, not to recognize, critique, and condemn Paul's equation of godlessness with homosexuality is dangerous. To remain within our respective Christian traditions and not challenge those passages that degrade and destroy us to contribute to our own is to contribute to our own oppression. Those passages will be brought up and used against us again and again until Christians demand their removal from biblical canon or at the very least formally discredit the authority to, pres to prescribe behavior. The second comes from William N. Kent from the United Methodist Committee to Study Homosexuality. The scriptural text, he says, the scriptural text in the Old Testament condemning homosexual practices are neither inspired by God nor are they of enduring Christian value. And the final example comes from Luke Timothy Johnson, a professor of New Testament Cadler School of Theology at Emory University. And he said, I think it is important to state clearly that we do in fact reject straightforward commands of scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others who have witnessed it too, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By doing so, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. Each of those three examples claim that the Bible is irrelevant, inaccurate, inaccurate, and insufficient. The irony of these statements is that they do, do the opposite of what they intend to do. And they were intended to help more people find the way but they give false securities to people still in the fast lane to hell. They trade the worship of God for worship of sinful man. And this type of thinking isn't limited to homosexuality. I've heard it said about any sins that people struggle with that God wouldn't have given me this personality trait if he didn't want me to use it. But that's simply not true. The church turns a blind eye to divorce, premarital sex, pornography, couples living together before they get married, sometimes even to extramarital sex. All of these are unimaginably offensive to our holy and just God. To further illustrate this, I'll quote Schaefer again. If we look to many of our evangelical leaders at, and at much of our ev evangelical literature, we find the same destructive views on divorce, extreme feminism, and even homosexuality as we find in the world. Evangelicalism is deeply infiltrated with the world spirit of our age when it comes to marriage and sexual morality. There are those who call themselves evangelicals and those who are among evangelical leadership who completely deny the biblical pattern for male and female relationships in home and the church. There are many who accept the idea of equality without distinction and deliberately set aside what the scriptures teach at this point. And there are others who call themselves evangelical and then e then affirm the acceptability of homosexuality and even the idea of homosexual marriage. The idea of absolute autonomous freedom from God's boundaries flows into the idea of equality without distinction, which flows into the denial of what it truly means to be male and female, which flows into abortion and homosexuality, 
and the destruction of the home and the family and ultimately the destruction of our culture. And finally, as we get for our final example of how man's wisdom is foolish, um, we look to the two thieves on the cross with, with Christ. And so uh, Luke 29, 23:39-43 says, "This is one of, Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back the things we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here we see the criminal mocking Christ with Christ has man's wisdom. Everyone at the crucifixion is mocking and insulting Christ. And why wouldn't they be? This man who says he is God can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and he's hanging on a cross. That's what worldly wisdoms would say to do. But the other criminal, he actually displays the foolishness of God. He praises Christ as he is being crucified, and because of this so-called foolishness, he is saved. And now, as we get into the foolishness of God, all this is, is preach Christ crucified. That is the gospel. No amount of human wisdom or eloquent speaking is going to change the fact that simply preaching Christ crucified is what we need to be saved. To illustrate this, I'm going to tell you another story. This story is of a man, of a man's salvation who was a Baptist preacher in uh, England in the mid to late 1800s. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God and sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but, they did, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved and if they could tell me, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for this simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was a, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher begun, began thus, My dear friends, this, very simple this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't, needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. A, said he in broad Essex, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it is no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. 
The text says, look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the right hand of the Father. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. But when he had gone about that length and managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was near the end of his tether. And he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if, as if he knew all of my heart, and he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have, to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right at home. He continued, and you'll always be miserable, miserable in life and death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with one thought, like when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, what a charming word, word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and the moment I saw the sun, I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and in the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming, lo redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's the story of Charles Spurgeon. During his lifetime, he preached the gospel to over a million people and personally baptized 15,000 new believers. As we just heard, he wasn't saved because a man was clever and eloquent. He was saved through a simple message of Christ crucified. Something, something this simple is often cast aside instantly for being foolish by the world. But here is the beauty of it. Preaching Christ crucified keeps the focus on Christ. Preaching Christ crucified keeps you from getting in the way. Preaching Christ crucified ensures that it is God doing all the work. Now, in closing, we often hear that the gates of hell shall not overcome the church. It is mostly referenced in the wrong way. Most references I hear are about Satan and his workers coming after believers, but think about what gates actually are. Have you ever been attacked by a gate? No, of course you haven't. They're defensive, not offensive. The gates of hell are Satan's way of keeping the gospel from reaching sinners. It is our job to storm those gates and preach Christ crucified and sit back and watch God bring the dead to life. Let's pray. God, you are holy and merciful and loving. And God, you loved us so much that you left your heavenly places to come 
to this earth that you created that had fallen away from you and wanted nothing to do with you. God, and you know that in our foolishness, we would never come to you on our own. You had to be the one to come after us. God, we thank you for all that you've done for us. God, I pray that um, that your message was spoken faithfully today. God, I pray that if anyone here needs to understand the message of Christ crucified, that they, they talk to someone. God, I pray that in all that we do, we glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.